I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. Well, Susan, I would like to welcome everyone back to Parent Talk. On this episode, we're going to address something I believe all of our listeners have come across, which is the funny sort of world of expectations. And I wish we could be in a room with everyone who's listening into Parent Talk for this episode, because I ask everyone to raise their hand if they ever had the experience of someone, either a teacher or a family member, raising an expectation of a child. It just didn't make any sense with regard to your child's age or situation and really made you feel bad. And so we're going to talk about how you can help yourself as parents establish reasonable expectations. And then once you have a reasonable expectation, you can manage someone throwing an unreasonable expectation at you. This is something that parents would come to me and they'd say, my teacher said, the director said, my mother-in-law said, and I will tell you, if it comes from a teacher or a director or a principal of a school, it does have a little bit more gravitas, you might say, you know, than if it comes from the friend down the street or even your mother or mother-in-law. So today we're going to more or less focus not on when parents and other people in your lives say it, but when someone who is in charge of your child in school has things to say that you really want to say, what do you mean? How do you expect a, and then you can fill an 18-month-old, four-year-old, eight-year-old to do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't make sense to you as a parent. So today we're going to start with the babies, with infants. That's where everything begins, right? I think so. And in the 21st century, many parents need to put their babies into care. Early infancy, there's not much complexity there in terms of development quite yet. But boy, by the time you get to a year of age, things are really complex because we have people sitting, we have people crawling, we have people rolling over and walking at all sorts of different ages. We really enter this realm, which almost never goes away the rest of your life, where groups are subjected to the group average, which is a meaningless number, except you know for population epidemiologists, which none of us are. So what does that mean? Let's say you take a million kids, healthy kids in America, doing fine, and they're all going to walk, right? So what's the average age that they learn to walk? Well, we can, we can figure that number out. That's pretty easy. It turns out it's 13 months. Does that mean we should go to all families and say, if you don't walk by 13 months, you're delayed? No. The average, I think, is about as useful as knowing the average amount someone eats for lunch. So you go to a summer camp and feed everyone the average amount everyone eats for lunch. You're going to guarantee that everyone's going to be upset. Half the kids aren't going to get what they need, and half are going to get way too much food. They're going to throw away a lot. It's going to be the wrong answer for just about everyone. There's going to be a few people in each group that do things right on the average point. But essentially, all of humanity does stuff on either end of the average. (laughs) Absolutely right. But if you look at most developmental books and you go to most early care and education centers, everyone's guided by this average. And so if you're in a early care and education center and your baby's uh, six months old and they come to you and say, something's terribly wrong, your baby's not sitting up yet. That milestone happens at six months. Well, it doesn't really happen at six months. Take a million kids and the average age at which it happens is six months. That means there's all half of all humanity sitting before six months and half of all humanity quite normally is sitting after six months. I think you get the idea. I do. The same problem shows up for walking, shows up for reading, which we'll talk about later. It shows up for just about everything. And so I think right at the beginning, we want to say the normal course of development is the course followed by your child in all its complexity, 
in fits and starts. And surely there's an age at which after which they're not doing something, that begins to be worrisome. So for walking, that's around 18 months. But the average isn't so useful. So when you're in an early care and education center and you get an expectation placed on you that your child should be sitting or crawling or walking by this average age, keep in mind, you need to think more about what's the normal range of ages. And if your child's in the range, you're doing fine. The last thing I'll say on that is the age at which you acquire skill is irrelevant to how good you are at the skill. Oh, without question. So you may end up being a gold medalist sprinter and start walking at 14 months instead of 13 months. Or you might start walking at 11 months, beat everyone out, or even at nine months and be a klutz and a terrible athlete. So when the light goes on, doesn't tell you how bright the bulb will be. Oh, that I really, you have some really great <laughs> metaphors there. But I love the idea of your talking about the range, because here's something else that I think that educators and parents, in fact, I think people in general forget. And that is that um, when it, if a child doesn't hit quote unquote, that average milestone, look at everything else, the constellation of this child's abilities in a, in a much larger context. So perhaps that child is working on a different skill. They're focusing on mastering another skill and not the one that everyone is getting like hung up on. Let's say you're in a play group and there's this little kid and he's up and walking at nine and a half or 10 months and he's running around or, or she, you know, running around and your baby is just has just learned to sit up. <laughs> they can sit up great now, but that's it. But then if you look when in another skill, maybe that nine-month-old has been so focused on, on, on running and walking and the, his motor skills, but your baby is sitting there and very carefully looking at shapes and trying to get it in the right shape hole in their little shape sorter. Different interest, even in nine-month-olds. Well, you know, another great example, just what you're talking about, Susan, which is so important, is walking and talking. I see this all the time. There'll be a person who at around 12, one, one and a half years of age, wants to get up and go. You know, people run around all the time. Little kids who love to run around don't like to stop and chat. So they may not be trying to talk. They may not be saying nearly as much as the child who likes to sit and really watch what's happening and try to catch on to what everyone's saying, can't wait to chat with everyone. Well, that kid who's sitting around watching you talk isn't going to get up and run around for fear of missing out on something. So the early talkers often are later walkers, and the early walkers are often later talkers. And from that slip, you could probably guess which one I was. But, <laughs> but, but the point is, all the kids who like climb the chandeliers and hang from the ceiling and all, they eventually talk. And everyone who's chatting away in brilliant adult conversation level at such an early age eventually walk. And it's hard to keep that in mind when you're a parent and you're either sitting in a schoolroom or a playgroup and you're watching other children do things that your child isn't doing. And let's face it, motor skills are the easiest things to observe. It's much more difficult to observe a child who's working very patiently on a pincer grasp and putting shapes in a shape sorter or doing things like that. Well, we're going to move on a little bit tonight. Toddlers, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about separation in toddlers, but just a tiny bit, because I have to say that separation is an incredibly nuanced and complex subject. It becomes a huge issue as children enter school, whether they do that at six weeks or 18 months or, or four years of age. It's an abrupt change from their daily life, and it's going to feel that way to a lot of children. The expectation that a child who has been on this planet for maybe 70 weeks, 
something like that, is able to understand and comprehend that their parent, who has been the center of their universe, is walking away and leaving them with a bunch of screaming children and two or three adults that they've never laid eyes on. This doesn't make any sense when you break it down that way. But teachers will say, you go, you go. If I've heard this once, I have literally heard it 1,000 times. It's the parent's problem when it comes to separation, not the child's. I can't tell you how false that statement is. And people listening may want to go, oh, no, it is the parent's problem. It can be the parent's problem sometimes. But in the vast majority of cases, this is an issue of not understanding what separation is. Separation is about a child building enough trust in another adult, like a teacher, that they are able to say goodbye to their parent, knowing that their parent is going to come back, that they are in a safe place. Once they can trust that, then separation can take place. And guess what? That doesn't mean that that child won't cry when you leave. That's why I say it's quite nuanced. But I just want to say to parents out there, because I hear this all the time, I'm not comfortable. They want me to just walk out and my baby is screaming. Don't walk out. Every state has in their regulation book that parents are allowed to be in the classroom at any time. So it is perfectly acceptable for a parent to stay in the classroom and to ease themselves out, wean themselves away from the baby. They may want you to start for your full day right away. If you've got that 15, 18, 20-month-old, which, by the way, is the most difficult age to start school and yet the most common age, you can start your child for an hour or two and then extend and extend and extend until that child has the time. It takes time to develop that trust. This is so helpful. I'm learning a lot from this. And it brings to mind something that seems to happen a lot. I guess it's the uh, challenge for a parent of knowing what happens when they aren't there. A lot of parents have the experience where they drop their child off, let's say two years old. They're howling when they leave, no matter when they leave, or no matter how long they stay and try to help with the transition. And then now we've got video monitors, right? And, and parents can tell actually what's happening when they're not there now. And the story goes, parents leave, boom, a moment later, they're running around, have a great time at the early care and education center. And the teacher says they're happy as a lark. Now, a lot of parents are thinking when they leave and they see their child crying, they're going to cry the whole time they're gone. So how do parents adjust their transition, not knowing how to actually be when they leave? That is such a great question. When that trust, when time has been invested, and let me tell you, there is no investment in your child that you can make that's going to give you a bigger return than giving a slow entry into school and allowing your child to develop the trust in their school surroundings with their classmates. And of course, most importantly, the adults, the teachers in the room. If you know that your child has had a transition and the child still cries when you leave, that is your child's main way of saying, mommy, I really don't want you to go. I want my cake and eat it too. I want you to be in this room and let me play with all my friends and be with my teacher. And there's lots of cues that a parent can look at. If the parent is in the room, but the child easily wanders away from the parent, it gets engaged in toys and plays, even maybe interact with another child, but more importantly, interacts with the teacher. If you see your child walking around the room, looking happy, engaging in different areas, not paralyzed in one place and needing the parent to move them to the next activity or the circle time, you can have a pretty good idea. He's going to be fine when I walk out the door and I don't care if he's screaming his head off. If you can believe the teachers, and you really can, if they say he cries for about 30 seconds and the minute he sees your car pulling out of the parking lot, he turns around and he's fine. 
you can know that that is just your child's way of saying, I'm going to miss you. In other words, reflect on the on the reason for the crying because you know what the reason is. Walk out the door and know that your child will have a productive and a good day. That's so helpful. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad that that was. But let's assume that your child's now in a preschool class and maybe that's two and a half, three, three and a half, four. And this is a comment I also get from parents who are very concerned and also teachers who are concerned. And that concern is going to sound silly. It's not, it's not about walking or talking. It's about sitting at circle time. This is a big deal in preschool. Oh boy. I got questions <laughs> about that. Do it's you? Over the years, all the time. Is my child an antisocial or a, a brewing danger to society because he doesn't <laughs> want to go along with everyone else at circle time? I circle time is like, I don't know what it is, the holy grail of preschool or something. All I know is that teachers say he can't sit for a circle time or, you know, the parent is worried that, that the child is not able to sit. So what I'll say to parents is let, let's break this down a little bit. If a teacher says to you in a conference or pulls you aside and says, you know, your child is disruptive in circle time, you've got to get some information. That is no information. That tells you virtually nothing. You want to know, first of all, what do you mean by disruptive? Is he touching other children or pushing them? Is he making loud noises? Is he not sitting in the way that you want? Is he getting up and walking away? And then you can ask other questions. What time is your circle time? What time in the day do you have it? How long does it last? What goes on in the circle time? Some of these factors are really in control of the teacher. If the teacher is doing a circle time right before snack, maybe she needs to make it earlier. Kids could be hungry, and that's why they're not able to concentrate. If it's too long, and that is really depending on the age of the child, how many children in your in your class, and where they are developmentally at any one point. So if you're asking two-year-olds to sit for 20 minutes, for instance, even 15 minutes, I think you're asking too much. Their attention spans are developmentally meant to be short. They're exploring the world constantly. If you have older children, like four pre-K kids, they can sit for 20, 25 minutes, but not if it's going Going to be like a boring teacher-directed lesson, only if there's some interaction. But here's something that I get a lot. The teacher will say, he rocks back and forth. I, maybe he's got autism. He's moving oh. his body. He can't. And I'll say, what do you, how do you ask the children to sit? And I wonder how many parents have heard this. Crisscross applesauce. Do you know what that means? I've heard of that, but yeah, tell our listeners. Crisscross applesauce means that you sit on your bottom with your legs crossed just in a normal way. Well, guess what, Arthur? Many threes and fours do not have strong enough core strength to be able to sit comfortably in that position for any length of time. Oh, for sure. If you have a child who's rocking backwards, maybe they're just trying to keep their balance. Or if they put, they want to put their legs behind them or in front of them or lean to the side, this may be their effort to figuring out how to sit. That's why it's important for parents to really ask their teachers, break this down for me. Exactly what does he do? How long are you asking him to stay seated? And also, 
can that child actually sit crisscross applesauce? It's something that when I was running my school that we asked teachers not to say that so that children could find their own way to sit as long as they're sitting and they're not bothering other children and they can keep their bodies to themselves in that moment. We didn't care how they sat in the circle, but you'd be surprised how many teachers think that that's an important aspect of the circle time. We're going to talk about this in future episodes. We get into academic expectations, but this is the beginning of the academic expectation method. Because, you know, just to take a silly example, if you had an early care and education center just for one-year-olds and the teachers came to you and said, we're very concerned about your one-year-old because they can't read yet, (laughs) you'd say, well, that's sort of silly. I'm quite sure this. I don't think there's any one-year-old who's ever read anything. So it's an unreasonable expectation. And we everybody see this when we talk about, you know, what age we expect kids to read. It's also true for the crisscross applesauce pose. And it may not just be age-related. Some kids' hips are pointing in a way that's not a comfortable position for them to be in at any mm-hmm. age. And the other thing I want to say is that that circle time thing, teachers and parents sort of fall into a trap of thinking it's an easy trap to fall into. You've got a kid who wants to run around and play duck, duck, goose instead of sitting for circle time. He sees everyone sitting in a circle and that, he thinks that's his invitation to run around and bop everyone on the head. That does not mean he's going to end up with ADHD. It does not mean he's going to end up with hyperactivity or any other mental health challenge. It could be that he's just a spunky two-year-old who wants to run around. And so to a large degree, we're trying to erase childhood from the American experience. We're trying to get kids at younger and younger ages to be like adults. And the younger you go, the sillier that gets. At a certain point, you can't make a two-year-old be like an adult or certainly a one-year-old. And I think this expectation discussion, you bring us to a good point here, Susan, because expecting children to do adult behaviors at younger and younger ages is going to generate situations where they can't do it and situations where schools go to turn around and say, well, if you can't do it, something's wrong with you, not with our expectation. You have to look at the child as a whole picture. You have to look at a constellation of behaviors, not just one isolated behavior. There may be something to be concerned about if a child has many behaviors that are not fitting in anywhere. But if you know that your child is happy, developing well, can be part of a community of learners and a part of community with adults at times, then maybe it's the assessment of that child that's lacking and not the child himself. Well said. Such a powerful concept. So I think that could be our tip for parents. What you said, it's a good place to end. Our expectation is everyone learned a lot this time. I certainly did. And uh, look forward to our next session on expectations. We talk about older kids and what schools expect grade-wise. Bye, Arthur. Take care, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.